Hey folks, welcome to the Did You Know Crypto Podcast. Today I'm going to be welcoming Dr. Constantino Stiliano, who is a law professor, and we're going to be discussing the United uh, United Corp case versus Bitmain, which is brought uh, basically as an antitrust case against Bitmain as well as against other players in the Bitcoin Cash community. So it, it, this is a really interesting case in that it's going to set precedent for other legal actions within the crypto community. So I think it's really important to find out what the basis of this case is, you know, what antitrust law itself is, who the players involved are, and what the possible precedents could be. I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. He's a very well articulated and intelligent person. So I, I know you guys are going, to, are going to like it, and we're going to be um, uh, having him on uh, throughout you know, the future to kind of comment on the, uh, you know, the continuation of these cases and new cases. But first, really quick, I'd really appreciate it if you could go over to iTunes and leave a five star and a written review. That's the biggest thing you could do for me right now. Uh, if you want to help out in any other way, you can go to supportmypodcast.com. That's supportmypodcast.com to find out all the other ways, Amazon links, all that kind of stuff to your shopping through that. That is very much appreciated and very, very helpful. But the best thing you can do leave a review on iTunes or whatever platform that you use. You can also go over to supportmypodcast.com slash discounts. That's slash discounts and sign up for the basically the alpha, beta, whatever release of my discount program for all my supporters and listeners. It's going to be absolutely free. You're going to get access to you know discounts for things like Tracers, Keep Keys, Bitcoin merchandise, as well as uh, some really cool health-related stuff uh, that that um, I've used and, and can vouch for. So anyways, if you go over there, you'll be getting exclusive discounts that is available nowhere else. So I am going a bit long, so why don't we just jump right into the show. But first, I want to thank you for listening. Without you, none of this would be possible. So thanks again. Enjoy the show. Today I'm talking to Dr. Constantino Stagliano, Assistant Professor of Competition Law and Regulation and the Deputy Director of the Center for Business Law and Practice at the University of Leeds School of Law in England. He holds a bachelor's and master's from Aristotle University in Greece, a master's of law from Harvard, and a doctorate from the University of Pennsylvania. Constantinos, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So I actually I read your your uh, the the blog post that that you did that kind of like you said kicked this you know whole thing off and kind of where it got on my radar and but other than that I kind of really didn't want to read too much more into this case so that I could kind of not come to it from a, a point of having kind of prior knowledge and be kind of more of a help for the listeners and that. I'm kind of coming to it from a from a place of ignorance, right? Um, and definitely within the the details and and uh, inside baseball of the law, I'm I'm definitely coming to that, anyways. But w- today we're we're going to be talking about the United America Corp v uh, versus Bitmain uh, Incorporated complaint. That's also got um, uh, co-defendants as well. Uh, but why don't, if you don't mind, kind of list um kind of who the you know the 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 plaintiffs are who the defendants are and kind of the basics of the case right so the basics of the case and and stop me if i get like uh, too much uh, into detail uh, from the uh, you know from the very beginning 
lawyers do tend to um, to do that a lot. Um, no, so... detail details perfectly fine, and and, uh, and and take as much time as you need. Okay, cool. Thank you. Um, right. So the case um, it was filed in, um, in in Florida about six months ago in December twenty eighteen. The plaintiff is United American um, Corporation, which is a Canada based um, company with operations in, in in the U.S. as well. Um, and it, the, their products and the reason why they're in the blockchain market, their products. Um, essentially do two things. One is that they, um, they uh, the, the, there's a, a, a service called Blocknum, which allows people to um, place transactions through the blockchain by using phone numbers instead of addresses, and that simplifies things. And the other service they offer is... Um, uh, block, block domes, which essentially are greenhouses that are being heated by the heat that is produced by the mining of Bitcoin Cash. So both of those services use Bitcoin Cash. And if you remember around November 2018, Bitcoin Cash forked into, um, into forks, Bitcoin Cash ABC and Bitcoin Cash SV. And their argument and their whole issue um, in this particular case is that the way that Bitcoin Cash split into, the way it forked, was manipulated by the people behind Bitcoin Cash ABC, which succeeded Bitcoin Cash in, in name, so people associate those two now. Um, it was manipulated in a way that dipped the price of Bitcoin Cash ABC and Bitcoin Cash SV below the levels of the previously unified Bitcoin Cash cryptocurrency. And so the problem is that because the price fell, they incurred some sort of financial damage. And they took the case to court to complain that a number of players, the like collectively the camp behind Bitcoin Cash ABC, which includes primarily Bitmain, but also Bitcoin.com and their founders. Um, they manipulated, they colluded with each other um, to um, bring in mining capacity to make sure that Bitcoin Cash would be, Bitcoin Cash ABC would be the winning fork. And so that's their complaining summary. And this case has um, quite a few other defendants in it, because I, I believe I remember I see that Roger Ver, um, Amori Sachet, and Jesse Powell from Kraken has also been pulled in. I, I mean, I'm guessing it's kind of along those the same lines as of uh, the, the collusion, I guess, if you want to call it, to uh, Marshall hash rate um, to be in favor of, of, of Bitcoin ABC over Bitcoin SV, but. Right. So, th so the way that Kraken comes in is that part of their allegation is that, um, Kraken, when they decided to, when it was time for them to decide which of the two forks they're going to support, um, initially, they decided to go with both, but they put up a, uh, a notice on their website um, 
cautioning users against using Bitcoin SV. So their problem with Kraken is that Kraken was part of the whole coordinated effort to drive users away. And by users, we mean spenders, miners, everyone really, to drive them away from Bitcoin Cash SV um, and obviously in favor of Bitcoin Cash um, ABC. And that's how Kraken comes into the picture. And with Jihan Wu, or not Jihan, uh, is is uh, Binance also? I couldn't remember. Are they included in this, or is this that their issue with them with the delisting a separate separate issue? Um, I believe it's it's a it's a separate thing. Okay, all right. So I just I'd gotten those mixed up in my head. Um, so this is basically an antitrust case, correct? It, it, indeed, very much so. And it actually, and the reason why I love this case is because it's the first case that primarily focuses on uh, on antitrust. And the reason why I love it is because it's doing everything right and wrong at the same time, in the sense that the focus is right. I mean, they the way they describe their complaint is very much an antitrust complaint. And we've never seen any of those. And it was just a matter of time until um, an antitrust claim would, uh, would arise. So for us lawyers, it was a, a joyful moment, so to speak. But at the same time, the the complaint itself, it, it's it's badly articulated because um, the level of generality of their claims is so high that if the case um, proceeds, the judge is going to have to do all the hard work of teasing out the actual antitrust claims in there. So they provide the context but they're not actually articulating very well the theory of harm behind it. And one of the things that I tried to do in, in my analysis is to try to figure out different ways that the, that the case could be argued. And obviously, this is, this is going to be the role of the, of the judge partly, if the judge is patient enough to actually see, and not just patient, insightful actually, to see that there is merit on this case. Um, as we speak, the case is currently at the stage where motions are being filed, um, which means that if, uh, and there has been a motion to, um, to dismiss, uh, a motion to dismiss has been filed, which means that if the judge accepts that, it means that they find that uh, the, the judge finds that there is no merit in the case and the case is gonna be thrown out. But if they find merit and they reject the motion, then the case can proceed. But we're not there yet. I was wondering, actually, since we're talking about antitrust, um, it's some people may not even be aware of what that is. You know, in the United States, um, you know, antitrust law is kind of associated with, you know, the Sherman Antitrust Act, um, the trust busting of of uh, Teddy Roosevelt back in the day with Standard Oil and whatnot. But if, if maybe uh, to kind of help people understand a little bit better what we're even getting at here is if you could kind of uh, give a, a, a layman's explanation and, and maybe the history of of what, uh, you know, antitrust law is, what it is trying to accomplish and and kind of um, how it relates a little bit. Um, you know, topically on the, on this case. Sure. Um, so what you said is generally correct. That's how it, it started back in like the um, the end of the 20th century. 
Congress decided that um, the so-called trusts, so large corporations, had accumulated too much power, and they passed a law, the Sherman Act. They passed a law to um, allow um, the Department of Justice to break them up or somehow constrain their power. Modern antitrust law has essentially two powers um, and two functions. Uh, One of them is to go after uh, what we call unreasonable restraints of trade, um, which is our case uh, today, the way they they argue it, um, which means that two or more people or uh, corporations, they come together and they fo- they form some sort of agreement or conspiracy to limit the competitiveness in the market. And the second function, the second harm against which antitrust, modern antitrust um, guards against is um, the so-called monopolization offense, which is when a company unilaterally, not in cooperation, in coordination with another firm, but unilaterally, when it abuses the power that it has accumulated in the market in some sort of ways. And in both cases, what antitrust is looking for is the so-called antitrust harm, which is harm to competition or harm to consumers. So if consumer welfare is reduced by either a unilateral practice or by two or more corporations coming together to agree to restrain uh, trade, competition, commerce, however you want to call it, then this is the kind of behavior that antitrust would go after. I I guess, uh, you know, kind of looking around at... um at the united corp uh, do we actually do we even know i mean you said they're a canadian company but uh, do we know who who this is or what, why they even have standing to to bring this because obviously you're you're not going to bring a case and bring people to um you know to, to court and litigate them if you can't prove that any actual harm like i couldn't go and per se, sue Bitcoin, uh, or I should say Bitcoin.com and Roger Ver and, and Jihan Wu and Bitmain um, for all this. If, you know, I don't, if I didn't hold any Bitcoin cash or even if I, maybe as a, as a holder of it, I could, but, but um, where, what is their, what is their claim to, to injury? Or is that even needed? Um, it, it is needed. I mean, uh, generally speaking, courts can assume jurisdiction in, in different ways. They can assume jurisdiction because of who the plaintiff is, because of who the defendant is, be, because of um, the subject matter of the dispute and so on. But in this particular case, it's it's pretty simple in the sense that um, they they do they are incorporated in Florida. They I mean, the the interests behind it are Canadian. Um, and the Canadian firm is sort of like a conglomerate, so they have like different operations. But United American Corp is um, a corporation organized under the laws of um, Florida. And at least one of the defendants is uh, based in Florida. So uh, the, the courts in Florida have jurisdiction. And then to use, to rely on federal antitrust laws, you would obviously have to make a case that antitrust is, antitrust laws are implicated, but also that the kind of conduct 
that you're alleging is um, anti-competitive affects interstate trade. Because if it doesn't affect interstate trade and it only affects trade in Florida, then you would go with um, state competition law. Um, that would be the state of Florida competition law. Um, but in this particular case, even though they don't explicitly say the assumption is that um, the the behavior and the economic effects of um, the defendants they spill out outside of Florida, and that's why we can um, we can bring in federal antitrust law. So they don't they don't explicitly make this argument, but it's uh, it's implied, and of course the the defendants can make a case and say this is not a federal antitrust um, case because there is no interstate um, commerce involved here. And actually, you mentioned that it had been filed in Southern Florida. And I'm wondering, is this purposefully done? Because I know that uh, for, is this an area that's well known for antitrust cases? That's kind of like, you know, the Eastern District of Texas is notorious for, for patent trolling. Um, um, filings just because they've seemed to have made a, uh, a cottage industry in that area um, for patent trolls to just file there. And they're more than happy to hear any and all complaints um, down down there. Is, is Southern Florida known for that or is this just happened to be just because they, I mean, happen to have somebody down there? I'm just wondering if there was some sort of strategy in, in filing it there versus somewhere else. Um, that's that's actually a good way of uh, thinking about it. I don't I don't believe that Florida has like a particular reputation that would help them in this particular case. Um, the reason why they filed is for one thing because they are headquartered there. Secondly, because the defendants are there, um, and the what usually happens in, in what you described is called forum shopping. So um, plaintiffs picking a jurisdiction that is more favorable to their case. But um, the reason to the, it's easier to do that when you can notice the effects pretty much everywhere. So in patents, for example, because the patent granting is federal, so your monopoly is federal, you can... Um, you can claim effects anywhere in the United States. Um, but in this particular case, it, what mattered most is who the, the parties um, are. I, I, don't, I don't have any reason, it might be the case, but I don't have any reason to believe that it was a strategic choice of, um, of forum. But who knows? Now, what are the kind of the implications uh, of this case? Now, if, you know, if you wanted to kind of give a... Um, either or scenario of if United American Corp is able to, you know, make all their, all, you know, th- th- that it's ruled in their favor for all their claims, right? And, and all the uh, defendants involved lose. If you could go through all the impl- you know, implications, what that could mean um, mostly for, you know, the Bitcoin space uh, and how others could be affected by that. And if they lose you know, that precedent that's set either way, um, it, it's kind of interesting to me, but I was wondering if you could kind of go into detail um, how all these different things could really play out for all the other players in the game. Um, so there are many implications because, like, there are a lot of issues. Um, there are a lot of issues involved here, precisely because this is the first case. So we don't like everything the court is gonna have to opine on is going to be trend setting 
And this affects whether actually um, the plaintiffs have standing, which is a very interesting issue because there is a very recent Supreme Court case that made rounds um, on the internet um, last month. Um, it was the, the case against um, Apple, and we can go into a bit of a detail um, in, in it because um, I believe that it's going to affect the crypto community um, in very specific ways. So standing who can sue whom is one major issue that um, we can go into a little more detail. The other thing that the court will have to decide is what kind of harm are we talking about? Because the way the case is argued right now seems to focus a little too much on the fate of United American Corp in particular. But this is not the... The, this is not where, where antitrust law has any interest. Antitrust law does not care about what happens to any single competitor. They care about what happens to the process of competition. So if a competitor is driven out of the market, but the market remains competitive, that's not an antitrust issue. We don't care. Um, so the way it's argued, it seems like it's very focused and specific on United American Corp. But if the court thinks that there is broader harm, then this will also have implications. And we can talk a little bit about that as well. Um, relatedly, you can argue it differently. You can say that it wasn't harm to competition that the, uh, what the plaintiffs did resulted in. It was harm to consumers, in which case you would have to engage in a discussion of who the consumers are. And it can be the miners, it can be us spenders, it can be the protocol developers, it can be the broader community. And what kind of harm are we talking about? Like, who are the consumers and what was the harm in this particular case about what happened with this forking of Bitcoin Cash? And the third thing that I think is going to have um, implications for the crypto community which is super interesting because, again, we don't really have any legal opinion on it, is um, whether what they did was actually wrong. So a cryptocurrency is about to split in two, and you have mobilization of mining um, behind the two camps. Is that a problem for the crypto community? Is this something that goes against any laws or any market practices in a way that we, we, we would consider it unfair or deceptive or anti-competitive and so on. So in terms of standing, in terms of whether what the defendants did was wrong, and in terms of what the actual harm was, these are all things that the court will have to decide on. And in a way... As a lawyer, I kind of like, I want the case to go forward because these are all interesting questions and um, it, it's going to be cool to see case law building up on this. But to be honest, there is such a huge amount of conjecture into analyzing this case that the court will have to basically figure it out itself. 
and it's not always the you know it's 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 not the the role of the judge to basically build the case for the plaintiffs. I mean, they are supposed to be able to make a case, and there is still a risk that the case is going to be thrown out if they don't see the um, uh, the, the merit. But a part of me, even though I think that the case is not well argued, a part of me wants the case to move forward because I'm curious to see how the um, the court is going to decide all of these very interesting questions. Yeah, you know, it is interesting because if you think about it, I mean, just as terms from, I mean, what what state governments decide is, is fair or unfair practices is a different thing. But to me, looking at it from 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 the way that the protocol works and, and consensus consensus mechanisms work is that really marshalling hash rate is is kind of to me playing within the rules of the game uh of how a proof of work blockchain works right so you know if you can get more hash uh then your then your you know coin is is going to you know be better off than that you know than than another coin and then the, the issue of the exchanges and how they specifically you know what the criteria that they're going to use to assign a ticker symbol that could be something a little bit different but uh, there there was a uh, a thing that popped up related to this with the split of bitcoin cash was a uh, shark pool which is a bitcoin sv uh, group and they their their outlook specifically was is that they were going to marshal hash rate to attack to to uh, mine uh, empty blocks on uh, very, you know, and, and basically any non-Bitcoin SV proof of work chain. So they were going to attack, you know, any proof of work chain that had really low hash rate, mine it, um, basically sell off what they could, and then destroy it. Was their, was their, you know, purpose? I, I haven't been aware of any actual attacks yet using that concept, but it's not, um, it's not impossible. And and it was really interesting to me because it's not necessarily wrong. Uh, you can assign moral uh, right and wrong, you know, as that's kind of a subjective thing to, to, to a person or to an ideology. But as far as the, 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 the chain goes, I mean, that's a, that's a perfectly okay thing to do on a proof of work chain is, you know, to, to marshal more hash rate, to do whatever you want with it, because whoever has, you know, the majority hash rate is who gets to set, um, I guess, make the rules. Right. So, you know, he who has the gold makes the rules. Well, you know, with the proof of work chain, who, who, uh, they who have the hash rate, you know, get to get to make the rules uh, in in a certain certain degree. I mean, there, there's 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 more nuance than that, but it, it it is really interesting to see. Like, how how do you think that these courts, um, not how I mean, not necessarily how do you want them to, but you know, given the the lack of education, which is totally understandable, because even people have. You know, even if you've been in Bitcoin for even years, um, sometimes you're, you're still constantly learning new things. Um, how do you think that these courts will kind of take into account the concept of of that? This is how a proof of work blockchain, um, uh, you know, functions. Uh, that's a good question. And um, as you were formulating the question, I was thinking that there are two different issues here. And one is everything that you described is in a way the informal governance around how proof-of-work cryptocurrencies work. And the other issue is whether that's law. 
but law in the sense that the you know the rule of law and courts would care about and these are two distinct issues and we can have the utmost respect for the uh, unofficial governance so to speak of the um, of the community and the ecosystem and i take no issue with it and you know all the white papers they set out the, the manifesto and the ideals of how um, cryptocurrencies are supposed to work and what they represent and what they stand for. And we've seen all that debate um, 20 years ago when the internet, well, 25, 30 years, I'm, I'm old, um, when the internet um, be- started becoming commercial, the pretty much like the exact same arguments, the uh, the nature of the internet that is unregulatable, that governments have no place there. All of that, we've seen it before. Um, and it's great. And it's a very libertarian um, construct. And as I said, I have the utmost respect for it. But a judge would then take the uh, the Bitcoin white paper and they would read it and they would say... The plaintiffs describe this sort of decentralized ecosystem as the way it's supposed to work. And then they make an argument and they say that what the defendants did by conspiring with each other, they broke this decentralized system. They conspire with each other to centralize power in a way that is not compliant with what the manifesto says. And then the judge would ask themselves, is this a legal argument? And my opinion is that it's it's probably not. Uh, th- there is there is nothing that says that white papers or all of these manifestos. Th- this is just governance documents, uh, unofficial governance documents. They're scientific papers and so on, but they're not legal documents. Um, but it's important to also say, and this is again why a court decision would be super interesting, is that. The only really standard that the law has to work with in this particular case is the very cryptic standard of unreasonable restraint of trade. So if it is deemed that what Bitmain and its friends did was an unreasonable restraint of trade, then yes, that's anti-competitive. But what is unreasonable is the question here. And to define unreasonable, because like we don't really have further guidance, we have other similar words to describe it. In other cases, you will find the word unduly instead of unreasonable, but that doesn't help much. To understand what unreasonable means, you would have to look into every market and every industry separately and see what are the competitive forces and much like what you described and what you said, the idea that when a fork occurs, what happens is that it's up to miners to either coalesce um, and come together or completely separately decide which one of the forks they're going to use. It seems to me that this is the state of affairs. This is what's been happening. Now, whether there is some degree of coordination around there does not necessarily change the fact that whoever has the the hushing power can decide where to apply the hushing power. So nothing really changes um, 
it, it wasn't like nothing really was different in this particular case um, as what we've been seeing. Now take that with a pinch of salt because the fact that a situation has been happening does not necessarily mean that it's legal. The fact that something is does not mean that this is how it should be and courts are aware of that. But it is very informative in terms of teasing out how the industry how the industry players compete with each other and it seems to me that what happened in this case with an extra de degree of coordination does not deviate very much from what usually happens around forks um, of course once the industry matures a little more we'll start seeing whether this is um, this this produces and this is where economic theory is going to come in, this produces positive welfare effects or not. And then once we have this science coming in, you know, what is the welfare implications of, um, you know, coordinating mining activity around forks, once we have more information on um, the effects of welfare around forking and mining activities and so on, then we will have more information um, about what, competition law needs to do in this particular case. Unfortunately, we're not there yet. We have none of that. So the court is going to have a hard time deciphering how the industry in its 10 years of existence has been competing so far um, internally and whether this is unreasonable or unduly. So again, we're just waiting to see um, what's going to happen. And as far as kind of talking about the defendants again, th this is a this is a complaint um, in a U.S. court by a Canadian company versus you know Bitmain is based in China, um, Bitcoin.com is based in Japan. Roger Ver lives in Japan, I believe. He renounces U.S. citizenship. Uh, Maurice Sachet is French. Um, Jesse Powell is American and Kraken is American based. The only two ones, those two are the only ones I know that are American based. You know, I'm just kind of, I'm kind of wondering, are they are they able to bring these the these uh, other you know the former the other individuals I mentioned that aren't based in the United States to court because they quote unquote offer services in the U.S. Um, it, because Bitcoin.com is accessible and they're not geo blocked. Is that why, you know, it just kind of seems a little bit strange that um, you would be able to go to an American court for pretty much the majority of the defendants, uh, as well as the plaintiffs aren't even based in the United States. Uh, right. So as a general principle, I'd say that my my intuition is that courts and, and legal systems in general are happy to assume jurisdiction. So if you present the court with a case that it can borderline take, um, it will take. I mean, it's it's especially if the case is interesting. It's unless the judge is kind of like lazy. But uh, the tendency is to like if you um, if you see that there is some ground to take up the case based on jurisdictional um, rules, then you you know you're inclined to want to take it. But in this particular case, is it's it's clear cut in the sense that um, they are incorporated in uh, the the plaintiff um, is incorporated in 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 Florida. Um, uh, at least one of the defendants resides in um, 
in in Florida and uh, the services of the um, the services of Bitmain and so on, they're also offered on U.S. soil. So it seems that both in terms of like the personal capacity, but also in terms of subject matter and effects, the jurisdiction um, is there. Now, whether the court um, will want to compel the defendants to actually show up in court and whether that's necessary and so on, that's that's a different issue. But it doesn't mean that they cannot proceed with um, uh, without it. Um but I mean, generally, American courts have have been willing to assume jurisdiction when they are presented with an opportunity. Okay, that makes sense. It's just, uh, you know, I, I I guess you should never underestimate a court's uh, in 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 a, in a, a judicial system's want to uh, to take a case, I guess. But uh, yeah, so it it, it is really. Um, it is really interesting to see this kind of forming because as much as, I mean, I come from the, the, I guess the libertarian perspective. I mean, I, I don't know your, your specific background in that necessarily, but um, a lot of, you know, a good, a large minority, I'd say of, of the space and definitely within Bitcoin is, is kind of in that sphere. And there, there is that strain of, well, I, you know, we don't want any oversight. We don't want, um, um, government jurisdiction over anything to do with Bitcoin or whatever, uh, you know, in, in, in any case, whether it's, you know, regulation of the industry or who can own it and, or, you know, any of these types of things. But in the end, it's going to happen regardless. I mean, uh, cases are going to be brought, judges are going to rules on the, rule on those cases, and those cases are going to affect at least the commercial, public commercial um, companies that, that work within Bitcoin. And so I think it's really important. A lot of, I think a lot of people don't pay attention or at least enough attention um, to, to a lot of this stuff. I mean, there, there is somewhat of an eye on the CFTC and SEC and their decisions on this. Cause um, that'll definitely have a, a you know, definitely with exchanges. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting to watch all this play out. So um, one of the, the interesting things about this this case and the um, and the reason why it's so important that it was brought under antitrust rules is that um, you're right that people don't normally pay attention to antitrust and the reason for that is that um, most industries are somewhat captured by sector specific regulation. So you go to like you know pharmaceutical and you have the um, you know, all the drug rules, you go into financial markets and you have like all the finance rules and so on. Um, so most of the industries have sector specific rules and these make the headlines because it's those sector specific regulators that are more active. Now, interest- interestingly, antitrust picks up everything that's left in, in, the, in that space in between. So it, it's a form of regulation but it's the form of regulation that fill in, fills in the gaps. And it's it's super interesting in this particular case what happened because the sector-specific regulation is not very well formulated yet. Um, it, we're, we're beginning to see a regulatory activity, and there is some, mostly in terms of like, you know, preventing financial crime, um, but it's it's not fully regulated yet, and we're not we're not very close to comprehensive regulation. So if you want to complain about um, something that you don't like, you're basically only stuck with antitrust because 
this is the the only all-encompassing law, so to speak, that says if the market, if there's something that makes the market less competitive, we can look at it. Um, and it's 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 one of the reasons why this case came under antitrust law. In in, in a way, there was no other law that it could come at, um, under. Um, and have chances of um, of actually um, proceeding. Um, the the other thing that I uh, that I wanted to say is that uh, I think that this particular case, in terms of standing, is it's it's critical, really, because standing means who can sue. Um, and the issue here is whether. Bit, um, United American Corp, the plaintiff, can sue Bitmain. And if they can sue, under what capacity can they do it? And the reason why I insist on that point is because if they're suing as spenders like you and me, if the court says that this, this, yes, they can sue, well, that means then that any one of us in the next fork or something, when we notice that the price dipped or there was some sort of manipulation or you know whatever theory we come up uh, with, we can just go to court and sue whoever we think is the right person to sue. Um, and we don't, again, we don't know um, what the, the court is going to say. But there is a recent case, um, Apple versus Pepper, that came out uh, about a month ago from the Supreme Court. And in that case, which is relevant here, um, the Supreme Court said that consumers, so people who buy apps from um, the App Store, um, Apple's App Store, they can sue Apple for um, monopolizing the market. Their argument was that Apple is charging 30% um, commission for every app that users download. And the reason why they can do that is because they're a monopoly. So they wanted to go against Apple and say, you're a monopoly. That's why you can charge 30%. We want our money back. Essentially, that's the argument. And there was an arcane rule that said that the only person that can sue under antitrust laws is the one that is directly um, that directly transact, transacts with the alleged monopolist in that particular case, Apple. So the question was, do users directly transact with Apple or is it someone else? And in this case, the someone else were the developers. And the court said, no, it's users, and users can go against Apple. So to bring this back to um, the United American Corp case, if the court says that United American Corp as a miner or as a spender or as an investor is in direct relationship, in direct transactional relationship with um, Bitmain as miner or Bit, uh, Bitcoin.com as miner or with the wallet, uh, providers or with exchanges, Kraken in this particular case, and so on, um, then that opens the door for similar lawsuits from people like us against, well, either wallets or miners and so on. And this is unprecedented. So the court is, whatever it says, it's it has to be formulated accurately. Because if it says that you can go ahead, it needs to specify under what capacity you can sue and who you can, whom you can sue. And if it says you cannot, it also needs to specify 
that you cannot under this and this capacity. Because if it leaves the question open, then it might inadvertently prevent other people um, from pursuing cases in the future because you know they would be bound by precedent. Or if it formulates it too broadly and allows the case to go forward, then it would open the gates for anyone who thinks they are aggrieved by whatever bad things happen in the crypto ecosystem, and that's pretty much daily, um, they can take the case to court. And it, it will be detrimental to have so many people complaining to court. And let's face it, I mean, especially in the US, people are litigious, um, complaining to court about everything that they don't like in the crypto ecosystem. Now, could this, in, in a way, almost, you know, this is just me kind of spitballing off the top of my head, um, allow for individuals who hold, you know, because you wrote in your, and I, I apologize earlier, I referred to it as a blog post, but it is actually uh, a, a, an article in the Harvard Journal of Law and Technology. So I, I, I didn't mean to demean it by calling it a, just a mere blog post. Um but you talked about uh, the the implication or that the the standing of United Corp as uh, as a I'm looking back here um, as a spender right as a, basically as a holder of Bitcoin Cash. Now, could this, if it goes a certain way, um, set precedent of anybody who holds, say, Bitcoin? Let's just say it's Bitcoin BTC or Bitcoin Cash or Bitcoin SV, whatever it may be, to almost act as though act as shareholders do, right? So shareholders can bring suits against a company if they, you know, let's just say something like um, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, he has a fiduciary duty to the shareholders um, to, you know, maximize profits to, to make the, to a certain extent, right. To make the company successful. And they're, 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 as far as my very amateurish understanding of the law goes, um, th that there is standing for shareholders to bring suits against companies, against CEOs. Um, if they feel that that person has been basically has done a bad job, has been a bad, uh, fiduciary of, of the, of the, of the shareholders trust and, 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 uh, funds w could that in a way kind of somehow, I don't, I don't know how to, to word it correctly, but somehow transfer into like if you hold Bitcoin um, in, in whatever way or any coin, I guess, uh, bring bring um, suit against players in the space, whether they're miners, whether they're thought leaders or influencers or, you know, they, they run a wallet or exchange as kind of a shareholder by holding that coin. So I love the the way you concluded the question because you kept adding to the to the list of the people um, and entities that we could go against. And uh, I mean, you mentioned it. The, the difference there is that there is a fiduciary relationship between shareholders and whatever the board and the CEO does. And it's, it's highly, highly questionable whether there is a fiduciary relationship between any one of us as spenders um, and uh, cryptocurrency holders and either protocol developers or miners. Now and 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 also just to note, um, for the sake of just being you know legally accurate, um, any cases that would be brought under th those rules would be brought under corporate law, not antitrust law. Um, the antitrust law doesn't really require any sort of fiduciary relationship. It only requires 
um, some sort of harm that antitrust law recognizes. So again, harm to consumers or harm to competition. Um, and this kind of like direct relationship, but the direct relationship is transactional. It just means that I bought directly from you. So could it open the uh, the floodgates? Um, it, it could. It, it could and it would be unfortunate. Um, but we would have first to establish that the entity, the actors that provide services to spenders directly are miners or are developers or are exchanges and so on. Um, and again, it's not quite obvious that this is the case. And I want to add another thing here, which is that um, antitrust law is concerned with commercial activity. And by commercial, I don't mean for profit. I mean activity that is meant to be part of commerce, part of trade. What developers do um, or what miners do as validators is not necessarily a commercial activity. It can very well be seen as a hobby. It can be seen as research. It can be seen as sustaining an ecosystem because they believe in it and so on. Now, the fact that incidentally they may be making money does not necessarily make it a commercial activity. To make it a commercial activity, it means that you habitually do it and you pay some sort of income on it and so on. So there are a lot of moving parts here to basically establish a rule that says that whenever we people are dissatisfied with um, governance in the crypto community, we can sue for antitrust damages or even in other areas of law. And there is another thing that becomes relevant here, which is that Ironically, United American Corp was too quick to file the case because they filed it um, 15 days after, you know, what happened, like after the, um, the, the, the fork. And they argued that the price dipped, and it did. Um, if you look at the price charts from back then, you would notice that Bitcoin Cash, ABC, Bitcoin Cash, um, SV went down in price. Um but what is the time horizon we're talking about? So if something happens and you file a case the next day because 40% price dip took place in those 24 hours, is that enough to prove that either competition or consumers were harmed? Because like the day after, the price might you know pick up. Um, so we're missing the time horizon here. And um, the 15 days that um, intervened between the incident and the filing of the case, it's, it's really a, a trivial amount of time. But interestingly, what happened in this particular case, again, if you go back and check like the, the price charts, you'll notice that the price dip um, was in line with a price dip in the whole cryptocurrency market. So pretty much every major crypto um, saw a price dip when that happened. Now compare that to other forks when the price of the fork, um, and I'm talking about, you know, say Bitcoin Cash or Bitcoin Gold, for example, the price of the fork 
dipped, but the price of other major cryptos around there, including the crypto that they forked from, it didn't, or it rebounded much more quickly. So in this particular case, um, it's, it, the argument seems to be a little weaker even because the, uh, the reduction in the price of the cryptos was in line with industry trends. So it kind of like breaks the causal link between um, the forking and the manipulation and the price dip. Because if all cryptos dip, then that means that it wasn't the forking that caused, and of course, you know, um, the mobilization behind the forking that caused the financial harm that they incurred. Now, again, they don't really go into um, so much detail, but if someone notices the industry trends, um, you you can make um, such arguments to be able to identify whether it was the mobilization that resulted in the alleged harm or it was just environmental and market factors. And, I mean, hopefully the judge is going to um, um, look into it, but I think it's an interesting case to be able to identify and isolate um, the different factors, which it, 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 it wasn't properly done in the, uh, in the complaint. Well, I think that's a, a great overview of the, of the case and its, and its implications. Was there any closing thoughts or things that you wanted to leave uh, people with before, before we uh, uh, close this up? Um, I think I mean we pretty much like covered all the main uh, the, the main topics um, um, here, but um, I, I think the because like most of the people that will be listening and tuning in are probably people like you and me, so consumer spenders, people that hold cryptocurrencies, maybe they mine um, a little bit, but um, I think the most important thing here is to disassociate any personal grievances, any um, opinions and beliefs one holds about how the crypto ecosystem should work or is working and how the law would approach it. Because the law is not there to protect um, the manifestos or, you know, Satoshi manifesto and, and all of that. The law is there to protect what it was device to do, which is protect the competitiveness of the market the way the law understands it. So um, I guess um, in a way I'm calling for sympathy. However the case um, plays out in, in, in court, it's, it's certainly going to dissatisfy some people, whether it, it moves forward or if it's thrown out, at least half the people are going to be dissatisfied. But in thinking about it, um, the priorities of the informal governance are different from the priorities of the law. And the law operates within certain constructs and, and boundaries, including you know precedent, but also the black letter of the law and so on. So I, I guess my closing thought would be just you know, look at the whole case and any other case that comes up with, with sympathy. The judges don't necessarily know what they're doing. They're trying their best to make sense of what's happening. And uh, they need to uphold the law, not the ideology that gave birth to this industry. The industry will take care of that, and the judges will take care of the law. So, again, two different things. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, how can people get a hold of you? Where can they read, um, you know, your, your writings and and uh, and kind of uh, you know keep up to date with what you're up to? 
Um, so this particular article is, um, as you mentioned, available on the Harvard Journal of Law and Technology. If they just uh, look me up by name, um, they're going to find it. My more academic writings are um, all on um, SSRN. And a Google search basically will um, bring up some results of um, op-eds I've written in the um, in the area. I've recently published an op-ed on the regulation of exchanges on CoinDesk, for example. So, I mean, if you Google my name, um, most of them are going to um, come up. And obviously, uh, anyone should be free to um, contact me by email. And on the uh, show notes at uh, digitalcrypto.com slash EP four zero for episode forty. I'll have you know all of your contact information, um, Twitter, uh, the 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 uh, list of all the um, articles and things that we we talked about in this episode. And uh, you know, once again, thanks for uh, taking time the, this evening to to come and talk to us. It was my sincere pleasure. Happy to talk about all these uh, cases, um, educate the audience, and also um, again to go back to my last point, raise sympathy for us lawyers. We deserve it. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Have a good one. Thank you. Have a good night.